Open is supported by Renaissance Bank. The support of partners like Renaissance Bank allows us to bring you high-quality journalism. We didn't hear about Leochi's disappearance till the next day, I think. I can't exactly remember, but it was all over the radio and the newspaper. And of course, when I first saw it, I thought nothing of it till I realized when they posted her address. And then I thought, oh, wow, I think I just saw Leochi. When 13-year-old Leochi disappeared from her home in Tupelo, Mississippi, it was the beginning of a 25-year mystery. It was August 27, 1992, and Lee was home alone as heavy rain and thunderstorms moved through the region. Hurricane Andrew had made landfall in Louisiana the day before and was now rumbling across North Mississippi. The only things missing besides Lee herself were a pair of shoes, a sleeping bag, some undergarments, and Lee's glasses. Police also found pools of blood inside the house. 25 years later, people still don't know what happened to Lee, but they're still talking about the case. When I first moved to Tupelo in 2015, the story of Leochi's disappearance was one of many that my mother-in-law, Joanne, told me about the city. Tupelo sits in the northeastern corner of Mississippi, about halfway between Memphis, Tennessee, and Birmingham, Alabama. It's a city of about 35,000 residents that serves as a regional hub, but it's best known as the birthplace of Elvis Presley. We would drive around running errands, and me being new to town, she would tell me about each neighborhood and place that we passed. We did this often during my first few months living here. When it came to Leochi, Joanne became more serious and a little bit frustrated. She believed she saw Lee on the day she disappeared, but like everyone else, still has no idea what happened to her. As the years went on, I had nightmares about this, and every time I would have a nightmare about it, I would call law enforcement. She and my father-in-law are co-owners of a local garden center, which used to be located on Main Street in West Tupelo, just a few miles from Lee's house. Joanne took a shortcut through Lee's neighborhood to get to work every day. My route every day for 20-plus years was uh, going down Jackson, taking a left on Lumpkin, right on Holmes, left on Foster. Branching off from Foster Drive is a short residential street called Honey Locust Drive. Lee's house sits at the end of Honey Locust Drive at the bottom of a hill in a small cul-de-sac. On that August morning in 1992, Lee's mother, Vicki Felton, says she left for work around 7.40 a.m., leaving Lee home alone in the Honey Locust Drive house. It was the first time Lee had ever stayed home by herself. Shortly after arriving at work, Vicki called home to check on Lee because she was nervous about the severe weather that day. When Lee didn't answer, Vicki said she had an uneasy feeling, and so she decided to go home to check on her daughter. She left Leggett and Platt, where she worked, and made the short drive back to the house. Around the same time Vicki arrived at work, Joanne was driving through the neighborhood on her way to the garden center. I left the house approximately 8. When I got to the stop sign at the corner of Foster and Holmes, I took a left, and I noticed ahead of me two people walking on the side of the road. Now, I was far enough away at that point, I did not see who it was or what they looked like. 
when I got closer, she was not covered. He was. He had a jacket on. And when I got closer, he put his jacket around the side or the behind her and put his arm around her shoulder and kind of pulled her close. And I pulled over into their lane, and I kind of got up close to him, and she looked over at me. He did not. He looked straight ahead. Before that, I could see what his face looked like, what his hair looked like, his body style, everything. I almost rolled down the window to ask, did you need a ride? And my kids will tell you to this day, I am all about, I call it my red flag warnings. If my red flags go up, I know something's wrong. And I know not to get myself into that situation. And immediately 10,000 red flags went up. So I did not roll down the window, but I made eye contact with that girl. And I slowly drove off and watched in the rearview mirror the whole entire time I got all the way up to that stop sign. And when I looked back the last time, I did not see them. And that's about where the bridge is. So I don't know if they turned off on the side street or got off the road down into the woods. Meanwhile, Vicki told police that when she arrived home to check on Lee, she found the garage door open, and upon entering the house, she saw blood on the carpet and on a door facing. She began searching for Lee in and around the house. When she didn't find her, she called 911 to report Lee missing around 9 a.m. Tupelo Police Chief Bart Aguirre was an investigator then, and he remembers the day Lee went missing well. Aguirre was teaching a fingerprinting class at Tupelo's Police Academy when he got a call asking him to come to the house on Honey Locust Drive. I said, I hate to break away, you know, unless it's something important. I said, well, we've got a, a missing child, uh, supposedly. I uh, said the detectives have already um, been on the scene and uh, there's blood there, but nobody. We did notice some pooling of blood in the carpet area in the hallway uh, just adjacent to the kitchen area and then also we had noticed in the master bathroom that the there there appeared to be a kind of a faint pink haze on the countertop where it looked like somebody had tried to to clean off that countertop Mm -hmm. with a wet rag but still left some blood behind and then we also noticed that they on the door facing uh, around the kitchen area there was also blood. It's hard to know how or if Joanne's story fits in with what Vicki and police found inside Lee's house but it's interesting and it made me curious about the case. The lack of information police were able to obtain about Lee's disappearance seems to be the main reason why her case remains unsolved all these years later. Yet here was this story from Joanne, this piece of information that could be important or could mean nothing at all. And I thought, surely there's more out there. Surely someone knows something. There were never any solid leads, never any suspects, and Lee's body has never been found. So I wanted to revisit the case. I wanted to retell the story and try to understand why no one seems to know what happened to Lee. I'm Emma Kent, and this is Open, the case of Leochi, a podcast from the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal exploring what we know and what we still don't about Leochi's disappearance. I'll look at why the investigation went cold, how the case affected the community, and explore some of the lingering questions surrounding the case that could help answer the biggest question, what happened to Leochi? This episode of Open, The Case of Leochi, was produced by Chris Kiefer with music by J.B. Clark. 
You can subscribe to Open on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit djournal.com slash openpodcasts to stream episodes and access additional content. Connect with us on Twitter at open underscore podcast or find us on Facebook. You can also contact us via email with tips, information, or just your thoughts about the show at openpodcast at journalinc.com. That's journalinc.com. Special thanks to Renaissance Bank for their support of this podcast.